Please be seated. For several weeks, really since the fall began, we've been uh, studying Mark's gospel together. Uh, We will plan to continue with that uh, at at the beginning of the new year. Uh, Next Sunday, uh, many of you remember Scott uh, Bryant, uh, who served here at Redeemer for a number of years on staff. Scott is with his wife, Karen, uh, serving in a uh, very strategic and and interesting ministry in the Philadelphia area. Scott will be here next Sunday and will preach God's word to us. And then today, we are going to look at the second chapter of Luke and consider together uh, the incarnation of Christ. We'll see if I can keep this at bay. I've come to love the Advent season because it gives us a concentrated opportunity to focus on the staggering wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, somewhere around 5 BC, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a young virgin. This is not an idea. This is not some story that we have found meaningful. This is history. This is true. God entered into space and time in this remarkable way. And so, as Jesus was conceived in the womb of the virgin, he began to develop as all fetuses develop until his birth. About nine months later, and when he was born, the baby who lay in that manger was also the God who spoke into existence all of the world. Staggering. You and I need to think about this. We need to remember that Christmas is not an idea or a feeling or an experience. It's an event. It's about history. It's about space and time, heaven and earth, flesh and blood. It's about God coming down. It's about this vertical movement from heaven to earth, from God to man. And so as we consider Christmas together this morning, we're considering the God who exists out of time, outside of time, entering into the stream of human history. If we live for a thousand years, we couldn't think about this deeply enough. If we live for a thousand years, we couldn't feel the power of this truth deeply enough. And so we have the opportunity this morning to explore it some more. uh, As I was thinking this week, it's similar in some ways to going to the Rocky Mountains or going to the Grand Canyon It's it's a tremendous thing to visit one of those places just one time. But one visit, you cannot exhaust what is in front of you, can you? If you've been once, you stand there, and at some point you just, you can't take in anymore, and you hope to go back another time and try to absorb it more. Well, it's a similar situation as we consider the incarnation of the Son of God. I think that's why Christmas is so important for us. The incarnation of the Son of God is the most astonishing the most wonderful news you've ever heard, but but it may be that you don't feel that way this morning. It may seem to you, maybe you hear that and you don't disagree with it intellectually, but 
in terms of the impact of it in your life, you don't feel the wonder and the awe and the power and the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God this morning. And so as I've been preparing this week to preach from this text, I've been asking God to open our eyes again to the wonder of these truths that we would glorify and praise God as we walk out of this room this morning because of what we've heard. Now, perhaps that's never happened for you. Perhaps you've been through Christmas after Christmas, and it means all sorts of things to you, but you've never been just absolutely floored by the overwhelming awe of what God has done in the sending of his Son into this world. And if you've just never been completely dropped to your knees in adoring wonder of Jesus Christ because of what he's done, then you've never understood Christmas at all, which is to say, you've never, I I don't know any other way around this, you've never really come to know who Jesus Christ is at all. But part of the glory of the gospel is that this morning you could come to know him, and as Hal said earlier, you could walk out of this room as a child of God, never to be disowned again, but to know him, to know his pleasure, to know his favor. So let's listen very carefully as we read this passage of Scripture from Luke 2. Listen again to what God has done. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
I want us to see two things from this text this morning. Two points. Two things that I think leap out from this text. One more than the other. The first is the providence of God. And the second is the humiliation of Jesus Christ. So let's consider these two things together. First, the providence of God. It's interesting, I think significant, that as Luke records the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, he begins with historical details. He points to a decree that's issued by Caesar Augustus, and he even, to put a further time stamp on it, mentions a man named Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. Now, we actually know quite a bit about Caesar Augustus. He is the, the nephew of Julius Caesar, uh, the one who's famous, famously uh, murdered uh, by Cassius and Brutus, the Ides of March, you remember? A.D. 44. Well, Caesar Augustus is Julius Caesar's nephew. Uh, it was this Augustus who defeated Antony and Cleopatra's forces and then ascended to become really the first emperor uh, of Rome, the one who's responsible for uh, the Pax Romana. These are words that I haven't spoken since high school. Uh, but this is the Caesar Augustus that Luke mentions here. Well, this human ruler, this man, Caesar Augustus, for the better uh, administration of his kingdom, issues a decree. He issues uh, a, 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 an edict that all of the citizens of his empire are to return to their ancestral home to be registered. This is for the purpose of taxation primarily. And so, as we read in verses 4 and 5, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Caesar Augustus issues this decree. Why? Well, for the, for the maintenance of his own kingdom, for his own purposes. But what was God doing? See, behind the scenes, God's working. We're talk, considering God's providence here. God was directing Caesar just as he wanted to for the purposes not of Caesar's kingdom, but of God's kingdom. God was directing him, bringing all of this about for his own purposes, in fact, in a remarkable way to fulfill a promise he had made more than 700 years before through the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 5, we read this, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Who's coming forth is from old, from, a, from ancient days. See, Micah prophesies that Jesus, the Savior, would come from Bethlehem. And we find both in Matthew and in Luke that this prophecy was fulfilled by the providence of God. And think about, I want you to think for a moment about everything that had to happen for this to come about. Okay? Caesar Augustus, uh, Augustus just happened to be born when he was. He just happened to be the nephew of Julius Caesar, so that he was in a position to rise to power. Not everyone had that sort of access that he did because of his birth. He just happened to defeat Mark Antony uh, in the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. He just happened to rise to power as the Roman emperor. He just happened to establish the Pax Romana, which brought unprecedented peace in the Roman Empire. You could travel, and there were roads that were being built, and there was safety, and there was, there was a unified kingdom that was vast. What a coincidence. 
He just happened to issue a decree for the census to be taken at precisely the point he did when Mary just happened to be nearly ready to deliver her her child, who was Jesus, who just happened to be the one prophesied to be born in Bethlehem as the Savior of God's people. And Joseph and Mary just happened to make the 70-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem safely and arrive just in the nick of time. Well, you understand. Of course, none of this just so happened. This is the remarkable work, the direct work of God's providence, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Good job, son. God is actively at work. He's directing history exactly where he wants it to go. God is always, always, always at work, moving everything, everywhere, at all times, exactly towards the purpose that he's intended from before the world even began. There, there's never a time when that is not happening. There's never a time when God is not acting in that way. But you forget that, don't you? You don't live as if that's true. We look at our lives, we study our circumstances, we see the things that are happening in the world around us, and often we begin to to think and live as if things are just out of control. I would say that even even though oftentimes we don't recognize it, many times we functionally live as if God were absent, as if God were not working out his plan at all times. Think about your anxieties, your fears, your anger, your impatience, your white-knuckle grip on life. And then ask yourself this question. How would a firm persuasion in the sovereign providence of God affect me in those areas? You see, the Bible presents to us a God who is a God of providence, who's always working out His plan for us and for this world in exactly the way he intends. And he is always right on time, never late. And he uses all sorts of unlikely people and circumstances to bring about. Who does he use here? He uses a pagan Roman emperor to fulfill his redemptive purposes in Christ. God even uses his enemies and your enemies to bring about his purposes in your life. Christmas is an announcement of the providence of God, a promise that there is more going on than what you can see or what you are experiencing. Christmas is an announcement that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So Christmas is about the providence of God. We see that here in this text. But Christmas is supremely about the humiliation of Jesus Christ, the humbling of Christ, the Savior who was born to die. You see that worked throughout this text. You see the great point of Christmas, the announcement of this passage, is that a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. And the three titles in verse 11, if you look at them again, the three titles there, Christ, Savior, Lord, show us how great he really is. He's the Savior. He's able to be the Savior because he's the Christ. He's God's Messiah, his anointed one. And he's the Lord. He's God himself in the flesh. He has come to be our sacrifice, removing our sinful guilt and making us pure. 
He's come to be our redemption, shedding his blood to purchase us out of slavery to sin and to purchase us for God, that we would be his own possession. He has come to be our propitiation, the one who turns away the wrath of God on the cross by bearing it in his own body as our substitute. And he's come to be our reconciliation, restoring our relationship to God that we might know him as our father by removing everything that stood in the way, our sin, our guilt, our misery. But though he's great, you see what the text Luke is showing us, the one who comes is great, he's Savior, he's Christ, he's Lord. But the one who's great comes as one who's small, doesn't he? The Savior of the world became a baby in Bethlehem. The one who is with us this morning by his Spirit was conceived by that Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The one who's coming again to judge the world in power came into the world in weakness. And you notice the lowliness and the humility in which the Savior comes? Think about it again. I know it's a familiar story, but he comes to Bethlehem. Who would ever think that God would come to Bethlehem? If God were going to come anywhere, surely it would be an important place, a big city full of important people, a big palace, a a city full of influential people. But God comes to little, insignificant, out-of-the-way Bethlehem. The Savior of the world is born in obscurity, and his mother lays him in a manger because there's no other place for him. The one who deserved royal robes was wrapped in strips of cloth. And who's the first to hear of his birth? Shepherds. Shepherds were viewed as nobodies. They were despised. They were dirty. They were unclean. But that's exactly the point, isn't it? Jesus doesn't come for those who think there's something. Jesus comes for those who are the despised and the lost and the broken, the infinite, eternal God comes for the small and for the little and for the sinful and for the weak. And that really turns our priorities upside down, doesn't it? Christmas reminds us, among other things, that God's priorities, the things that God values and prizes, are often completely different from ours. We might pick a big city, but God picks Bethlehem. We might pick a palace or at least a nice house, but God picks a cave. God comes in weakness. He identifies with the lowly and the poor. And why does he do that? Why does he always do that? Sometimes we ask him that in frustration. Why do you always do that? But he does so so that his power will shine all the more brightly. So I think Christmas teaches us to boast in our weakness, to stop covering it up. It tells us that we can stop trying to get rid of our weakness or compensate for it because it's not your strength or your ability or your wisdom or your, your, your intellect or whatever it might be. It's none of that. It's, it's about God's wisdom and God's might, and it comes in weakness. So there's this humiliation of Christ that that we see all around the circumstances of his birth, but that's not even the depths of it. If we're going to think about the humiliation of Christ, here's the thing. It's not just that he was born in lowly circumstances. It's that he was born. 
for God to wear the, the flesh that you and I wear? For God to willingly take on himself the lowliness and humility of a human body? There's, none of us have begun to comprehend how low God stooped down to do that. There was nothing that compelled him to do it. Nothing that forced him to do it. I read one of my former teachers this week, and he, said, he says it this way. It was not necessary for Jesus Christ to decide to humble himself. He had every right to continue without adding to himself the humiliating status of humanity. But he determined not to exercise that right. The one who is equal to God, who is in the form of God, who is himself God, did not stop being God. Such a thing would be impossible. But rather, he took on something that was not a part of him previously. What was it he took on that was not a part of him previously? A human nature. Jesus had lived forever in infinite glory, but he left that willingly, freely, with no compulsion but love. He left that in order to come and to taste our sadness and our sin and our misery and our weakness. And worst of all, he did that to have our sin imputed to him, not just to wear our nature, but to have our sin imputed to him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might in him become the righteousness of God. He had no sin in him, but he came in order to have our sin laid on him. This is why Jesus came. This is why he was born, to be humiliated as he bore not only our nature, but our sin and our guilt. Now, it's easy to complain about suffering, isn't it? I do it all the time. Even little suffering, minor afflictions. It's easy to complain about big sufferings, too. It's easy to talk about the problem of evil. It's easy to throw that out there as some sort of philosophical trump card or, or ethical trump card to question God, to challenge Him, to complain about what He does, so forth. Some of you may be doing this right now. Some of you may have been living this way, or you may find that you're prone to living this way. But let's not talk about suffering as if God has done nothing about it. Let's not talk about suffering as if God Himself has not entered into it. Let's never talk about it that way. Because God has not kept a safe distance from suffering. God has not kept a safe distance from misery and from pain and from sorrow and from loss. In fact, you could accumulate all the history of the world's suffering and affliction in one load and lay it on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's less than what he endured on the cross. Because there he endured for us the wrath of God Almighty to be the Savior of his people. God who made the world enters into the world to fix what we did to his world, and he does so at the unspeakable cost of the humiliation and death of his own son. Absolutely staggering. And I'd like to apply this to us in three ways this morning as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. Three ways in which I think the humiliation of Christ this Christmas 
ought to, to take shape in our lives. The first is this. The humiliation of Christ is a mirror that shows you the greatness and depth of God's love. That's one way the humiliation of Christ, as you consider his birth and his life and his death, the humiliation of Christ is intended to serve as a mirror that you can look into. And in that mirror, what you see is how deep the love of God is for for sinners like you and me. How far, put it this way, how far did Jesus come down? How deeply did he go down? Well, that's how deep God's love is. The depth of Christ's humiliation is the measure of God's love. Now, let me say this. If you don't spend any time, and and Wesley, you were so honest about this earlier, and this is a struggle for us. If you don't spend any time meditating on the humiliation of Jesus Christ, how low he came down, how far down he went in his birth, his life, his death, his burial, if you don't spend any time not just passing thoughts, but meditation, serious thinking, contemplating, reflecting. If you don't spend any time focusing your attention there, there's no way that you can begin to comprehend what God's love is, what it means that God is love. Because God's love is demonstrated in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is seen in this, the humiliation of the Son. You want to see how deep God's love is? Look how far down Jesus has gone. Keep looking there. Keep meditating on his deep humiliation. And there you see not meaningless, not despair, not loss, but the glory of God's love. And I'm stressing this because one of the oldest and most dangerous temptations in in the whole world is for people, and especially here for Christians, to doubt the love of God. And that's because we don't always feel the love of God. And then when, we, when our experience of God's love dips for some reason or other, we begin to think things about God that aren't true. We begin to remake him in our own image. And that's when we need to look again very closely and deeply at what Jesus has become for us and what he's done for us. This is what Christmas shows us, the love of God and the humiliation of Christ. One of the great old Puritan pastors said, said it this way, and I stole the sermon title from him. Christ's incarnation is nothing but love covered with flesh. Wow, what a great expression. Love covered with flesh. Here's the, here's the point. Behind the incarnation of the Son of God is the eternal, free, electing, saving love of God the Father. See in the incarnation of Christ the depth of God's love. Secondly, the incarnation of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, calls us to humble service. Jesus stripped himself of his robes of glory and clothed himself in rags of humility. Now here's the point. Being Christ-like means being like Christ in his lowliness, in his humility, in his service. Now, if you're like me, that's really, really deeply convicting. Because I still don't very much like to serve other people. Not in the ways that are meaningful. 
But to follow Christ is to follow him down, right? There was no other way for him. There was no other way for Jesus, and there's no other way for those who belong to him. Following Jesus means following him into self-sacrifice, into self-denial, into service, into humility. Now, take that out of the theoretical and put it into the practical. Begin to think about your friends, about your neighbors, about your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or the people you work with, the people that you're sitting around right now, the people that are hard for you to deal with. What does it look like to follow Christ into self-giving, into sacrificial dying to yourself and serving others? The humiliation of Christ calls us to humble service. Third, finally, the humiliation of Christ calls us not only to see the love of God and to follow Christ into the lives of other people in humble service, but here's the third, third thing. It calls us down to our knees in adoring wonder, in praise. It's what the shepherds and the angels have in common here in Luke 2. They, they, just, they just break out in praise to God because the, the news is so good. The joy is so great. Verses 13 and 14, glory to God in the highest. The angels sing. Can you imagine being there? I was imagining that earlier as we were singing together, which sounds great. But I was imagining this army of angels. Glory to God in the highest. Why did they, why did they say that? Why did they sing that? Because the news is so great. And the shepherds initially were filled with fear, but did you notice how they leave? Rejoicing and glorifying, glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard. This is exactly what they should have done. Is there any other right response? The infinite God came infinitely down, all the way down for us, for our salvation. The eternal God, please don't let these things just be familiar. The eternal God was born. The God who thunders in the heavens cried in a manger. The Lord who made Mary was born of Mary. So that she was less than the child in her womb. And the child that she bore was greater than its mother. The infinite God became subject to time. The unchangeable became changeable. God became man. How could, how could we respond with something other than praise? Well, what about you? I think that's the question that this presents to us. Have you entered in? Is this how you're responding to Jesus today? There are so many wonderful things about Christmas. But there's only one thing that it's really about, and it's about how, you're, how are you responding to this great, glorious Savior who's Christ the Lord? Have you entered in? Do you know the joy of Christmas? And I mean the joy that we see in the angels and the shepherds, the joy that comes to the person who falls down and worship Christ. Do you know that joy? Do you have this Savior? If you don't, you can have him this morning.
you can take him and have him as yours and you will be his. And you can leave here just as the shepherds left that manger in Bethlehem, rejoicing and glorifying God because of what you've seen and heard. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this good news of great joy. We thank you for Christ, for his humiliation. And now that he is the exalted Savior who gives life and salvation to those who come to him. Lord, we thank you for this good news and we thank you now for the table of the Lord that we come to and ask that you would use it uh, to lift us up, to build us up, to strengthen and give us endurance and perseverance with joy as we wait the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Use this word, we pray. Use it powerfully and effectively in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.